Hello, welcome to episode three of Archiving AK, a podcast of archives and special collections at the UAA APU Consortium Library here in beautiful Anchorage, Alaska. Today, your hosts are also your interviewees. Gwen, Veronica, and I, Arlene, will be talking with each other about how tourism is represented in the archival collections here. It's June here in South Central Alaska, and that tends to be kind of the high point for tourism around here. So for our third episode of our podcast, the three of us, me, that's Arlene, and Gwen, and Veronica, will be talking about Alaska tourism and how it's reflected in the collections we have here at Archives and Special Collections. I think one of the surprises to all of us when we started working with the collections here is how much of the content of our collections reflect tourism in one way or another. Not people who are coming up for jobs or taking a chance on striking it rich in the gold or oil fields. Real bona fide tourists coming to see the scenery, learn something about the culture, do some recreational activities, and then head back home. Veronica, you kind of started us on the path of talking about this as a theme for a podcast episode. Why don't you explain the genesis? A few months ago, I was working on the reference desk, and we had a researcher come into the archives looking for archival material that related to tourism. When I asked how early they were interested in, they responded, well, tourists didn't come here until the 1930s. And at this time, I was writing the topic guide for our steamship-related collections, so I was seeing a bunch of tourist collections from the early 1900s. And I told the researcher that there were actually steamships coming up with tourists in the early 1900s. And they gave me this side eye as though they didn't believe me, (laughs) kind of like, yeah, okay, lady. They ended up really wanting the 1930s, so at that point it didn't matter. So we've kind of divided this up, at least looking at our collections a little bit chronologically. And since Veronica was already looking at the earlier materials, we let her start. For this podcast, I decided to look at our oldest tourist collections up to 1941, so pre-World War II. Our oldest tourist collection dates to 1891, and this is the Mr. and Mrs. William P. Smith photograph album. At the time, Southeast Alaska was really the more developed part of Alaska, and Sitka was the capital. So it only makes sense that that's where they went. They took photographs of Wrangell, Taku Glacier, Juneau, Douglas City, which is across the channel from Juneau and Sitka. They also did some glacier hiking, and there's this really neat photograph of a woman hiking on a glacier in her really long dress and those heeled boots. (laughs) And a lot of the places this Smiths traveled to actually continue to be visited by tourists today. Then we have two collections from people who traveled on the Pacific Steamship Company. One is an unidentified person, and they came up in 1908, and the other was Ethel Terry from 1912. And these two collections are travel diaries given to passengers by the Pacific Steamship Company. Again, they went to Southeast. They also had stops in Metlakatla and Killisnoo. The person who traveled in 1908 called Ketchikan the most up-to-date little city in Alaska. (laughs) But it was raining when they got there, so they didn't get off the boat, which I kind of find interesting (laughs) because it rains a lot in Southeast. Um, except for right now, because they're. Well, how do trapped. they know it's up to date if they never got off exactly, the boat? Exactly, that was my question. Did somebody <laughs> tell them that? I mean, I don't know. They also said that Killisnoo smelled from the oil works. I looked it up, and I guess there was a fish processing plant there at the time, so maybe that's where the smell was coming from. But I thought that was a little interesting. And the person who wrote this diary actually did a lot of fishing, and they ate a lot of halibut. That's what they said. They ate a lot of halibut. So you're seeing people coming to Alaska to fish, even in the early 1900s. 
We have a collection titled English Sport Fishing Party Photographs, which were taken in 1912. This collection has photographs of men posing with their salmon and halibut catches and halibut, salmon, and crab hanging from a rope in front of the cabin of their boat. So fishing tourism seemed to also be a big thing back in the early 1900s. Another kind of neat tourist album that we have is the Edward Biddle photograph album. But I'm not really sure if this was, in fact, a real tourist album. I don't know why he came up here. Like many of our tourism collections, it came to us without much description or provenance. We know who it belonged to because Biddle's name is etched on the front and the year is on the front as well. And it was created in 1913. If he was a tourist, he came to Alaska via a pack train from Glacier National Park. So that's kind of interesting. But that's also what kind of makes me question whether or not he was a, tour a, a tourist. This one has photos of a man swimming naked in glacier water, too. Oh. Um, which seems <laughs> yeah, seems cold. There's this really cool action shot where he is his torso and head are in the water, but his butt and legs are sticking out. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Um, this one also has some pretty cool photos of Sitka in southeast Alaska. In 1900, the construction of the White Pass and Yukon Railroad was completed which really opened up travel from Skagway in southeast Alaska to Whitehorse, which is in Canada. And in 1923, the Alaska Railroad was completed, which connected Seward to Fairbanks. Out of this grew a bunch of different types of tours, but one was called the Circle Tour. I've also seen it called the Yukon River Circle Tour or the Yukon Circle Tour. And this seemed to be a popular trip, uh, particularly amongst our collections and the collections that we have of tourists coming to Alaska. The circle tour went to Whitehorse via Skyway, down the Yukon River to the Tanana, and up to Nanana and Fairbanks, and then down to Anchorage and Seward, with occasional stops in Denali National Park. Back then it was called McKinley, which was established in 1917. The D.S. Clark photograph album from 1927 is really the first collection that we have of a tourist doing this full trip that I have, that I have found. Then we have several others who did very similar trips. Many also seem to just do Southeast Alaska to Whitehorse and Dawson. My guess is probably because of the expense of the full trip. Unfortunately, we do not have any invoices that show the expense of these trips except for somebody who did it in 1941. One collection that I enjoyed was the Louise letters from 1928. They were written by a woman whose first name was Louise, last name we don't know. She was writing to her friend Hazel. She traveled from New York City and that's another interesting thing. We're seeing people come to Alaska from all over the U.S., not just the West Coast, which, you would, which would be much easier to come to, but people are actually coming from places like New York and Pennsylvania. In one letter to Hazel, Louise wrote, There are no young people in our party except the conductor, so I get wonderful attention. <laughs> There's a young man just graduated from Harvard Medical School taking the same trip, however, and the three of us play together. I've never had so many consecutive hours of fun. You see, I sleep about three hours a night. At least I have so far. I'm fairly popping with enthusiasm and fun. So a lot, a lot of people who came up on these steamships, there was a lot of dancing. There were bands on these boats. They played shuffleboard and cards. There's a lot of entertainment going on. And then on our trip on the Yukon River to Dawson, she wrote, this Yukon River trip shows you the wilds of Gold Rush country and we realize the utter isolation. The cities are mere towns with only a handful of houses that resemble shacks from the outside. 
So it's interesting to get an, an outsider's perspective on the effects of the gold rush and the, those who came up here during the gold rush. She also ate steaks of caribou, moose, and mountain sheep and watched a gold dredging operation. So it's in the later years of the time period that I was doing that I saw a lot more gold mining operation photographs and more fishing trips start to appear. Then other similarities, particularly on the trips in the 1930s and 40s, when they went to Skyway, I saw photographs with Martin Itchen, his effigy of Sophie Smith, and the world's largest nugget. These seem to be really popular attractions in Skyway. So Martin Itchen was born in Germany, and he made his way to Skyway, where he eventually built a tour bus from an old Ford bus, which he referred to as a streetcar, and he gave tours of Skyway. On one of his streetcars, he had a Sophie Smith mannequin, and for those who do not know, Sophie Smith was a con artist and gangster who was well known for his prize package soap cell racket, hence the Soapy part of his name. His real name was actually Jefferson Randolph Smith II. Smith was killed in Skagway during the infamous shootout of Juno Wharf in 1898, and I am really waiting for HBO to do the TV show Skagway. Because <laughs> they already did that one. I'm surprised so somebody hasn't. That Maybe I'll write it. Okay. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and then sometime later, Itchin created the mannequin of Sophie Smith, and he used the foot pedal for it to salute people as they walked by, which I find incredibly creepy. <laughs> uh, and then the world's largest gold nugget was chained to a tree in Skagway near the cemetery, but it was really just a big boulder Itchin painted gold. Itchin actually took his streetcar to Hollywood to promote tourism in Skagway. And there are some photographs of Itchin and Mae West on the internet, if you Google them. <laughs> Apparently going down to Hollywood helped the tourism in Skagway. Another similarity in the later years seemed to be trips that tourists took through Purgatory, Alaska, which is along the Yukon River, about 45 miles from Beaver. Purgatory was founded by Prussian immigrant William Yannard. Yanner immigrated to the U.S., joined the military, and came to Alaska with Edwin Glenn as part of a surveying expedition. After Yanner retired in the early 1900s, he claimed land along the Yukon Flats, which he called Purgatory, because it was one hell of a place to live. So, original. His brother Herman later joined him. On the banks of the river along the way was a mannequin the Yanners named St. Nicholas, the patron saint of Purgatory, that was wired to wave at the tourists as they pass on the steamboats, which is really, really creepy as well. What is with the mannequins? I don't know. I don't know. It's really weird. Did they learn maybe. from each other? Did one get the idea from the next one? Maybe or it what? was just like a popular thing was during it, that Maybe it was a thing period. to do. I find them creepy. <laughs> so, all right. So many of the collections, from the very beginning, people seem to take a lot of photographs of totem poles, churches, the streets, glaciers, which is pretty similar to what people take photos of today. So it's interesting to see that things haven't really changed too much in that regard. And this brings me to the last tourist collection in my time period, which is the Mildred and Robert Maurer scrapbook. At the beginning of June 1941, the Maurers decided they wanted to travel to Northwest U.S. So they headed out in their car, which they camped in, and they set up beds in the front seat, which is kind of neat. And they traveled from Lancaster, Pennsylvania to Seattle, where they then booked the Yukon River Circle Tour. So this tour cost them, in 1941, $135 per person, which would be equivalent to $2,310.50 per person today. But that was for an upper deck cabin. So they had a room with a slight view, I guess. So that's it for my time period. Gwen? 
tourism in Alaska took a little bit of a hiatus during World War II, but during the post-war period, tourists got a new way to get to Alaska from the, the lower 48. The Alaska Highway, also known as the Alaska Canadian Highway, or the ALCAN, was built during World War II in order to connect contiguous United States and Alaska. Construction on the 1,700-mile road began on March 8, 1942, and was completed October 28th of that year, though it was not usable by general vehicles until 1943. The completed road stretched from Dawson Creek in British Columbia through BC to Yukon, to Delta Junction, Alaska, and then to Fairbanks, connecting it to the Richardson Highway. In 1948, the highway was open to the public, though it remained mostly unpaved until the 1960s and was not fully paved until the 1980s. Traveling by car to Alaska was finally an option for people and it became a really popular one, but tourists were also taking steamships and railroad, often in addition to traveling by car. So they might drive the Alaska Highway and then take a cruise ship down to Southeast Alaska, take a railroad trip from Skagway to Carcross in Canada, and then back. Um, that was a pretty common combination of modes of transportation that I saw. In looking at the collections for this podcast, I mostly looked at ones that had some written description of the trip because that would translate well to, to an audio format. But in this time period, photographs were becoming more commonplace and um, along with slides, color slides. So standalone travel diaries uh, are less common from what I saw and collections of slides as well as scrapbooks with both photographs and description in them are a more common format. Another difference I saw was the demographics of people who were coming up here. Um, before, it was actually a lot of younger women traveling alone or with uh, friends, whereas in the 1950s and 60s, it tends to be older couples or there were a couple of older women traveling together. The earliest collection that I looked at was the Ada and Olia scrapbook, and this was two women from Texas who traveled through Western, the Western United States and Canada to Ketchikan. Um, this was before the Alaska Highway opened, so there was no land route into Alaska. So they drove as far as Prince Rupert in Canada and then took a steamship tour through the Inside Passage, um, which is just the, the waterway between the little islands um, in, in Southeast Alaska and Western Canada to Ketchikan. Um, so they talk a little bit about Ketchikan, which interestingly enough, they spell differently than, than we typically spell it today. They spell it K-A-T-C-H-I-C-A-N. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say Ketchikan is a busy little place, got room at the second hotel we tried. Very lucky. And such a lovely outside room. Perfect view of the town and harbor. Cost us $6.50 for two nights and we couldn't believe it wasn't more. Mm -hmm. Food was high compared to Canada's prices. It, of course, is on an island. Mm -hmm. 
And then they talk a little bit about how the geography of the town affected the, the buildings. So the houses are set every which way they can get the foundation best as the mountain is all rock. There are no lawns, no gardens, only a rock garden with flowers. And then um, speaking about the cruise from Prince Rupert to Ketchikan, um, our round trip ticket was $24.50 each. So some of these accounts give a little bit of insight into what people were thinking when they traveled to Alaska, um, their, their reasons and motivations for taking the trip. And one of these collections was uh, the William and Emma Vogelin scrapbook. And they traveled um, across North Dakota and Montana through Canada to reach the Alcan Highway and Dawson Creek in the summer of 1955. They drove on to Fairbanks, Alaska. The couple was in their mid-50s during the trip, so it kind of fits with that trend. And they, they drove in a 1953 Chrysler Imperial. Um, this was the second <laughs> oldest collection that I looked at. And um, in speaking or in writing about their, their motivations for taking the trip, um, they write, when we told folks that we planned to drive the Alaskan Highway to Fairbanks, Alaska, some asked, whatever makes you want to do such a thing? It seemed we were thinking of doing a most unbelievable thing. Others warned that huge mosquitoes would practically devour us that there was danger from wild animals, the road was hazardous and extremely difficult to travel. We must carry plenty of gasoline and oil along as it would be dif difficult to replenish our supply. And places to eat and sleep were poor and far between. And we must rough it instead of living in comfort like we could if we would choose some well-traveled and compactly settled part of our North American continent. <laughs> now what we really wanted was to find some place that was more back to nature, so to speak, where there is plenty of room and where we could move about without bumping elbows with our fellow man. We wanted to see the mountains as the creator made them. We wanted to see the lakes surrounded by virgin forests instead of resorts, quiet and restful and undisturbed by the hum of motorboats. We wanted to go where we didn't feel that clothes made the man. Don't get us wrong. <laughs> We like resorts, we like motorboats, we like to see and wear nice clothes, but for once we wanted something different, and we got it. <laughs> um, so once they got to Fairbanks, uh, they talked a little bit about the prices of specifically food there. Um, so they write, just a little idea of food prices. Some milk was 50 cents a quart, although Matanuska Valley milk was 69 cents. Bread was 50 cents a loaf, a glass of milk, 25 cents. A dish of prunes, four inches the dish, <laughs> 50 cents. Orange juice, a s small glass, 25 cents. Any cooked cereal, 50 cents a dish. So not everyone seems to have shared the Vogelin's reasons for coming up. It was really interesting to see kind of a contrast between sort of the different ways that people talked about Alaska and the things that they did there. One example is Ashley and Ruth Lorcan, and they were a couple from Rochester, New York. Uh, they took actually two trips to the Western United States and Canada, one in 1968 and one in 1973. Um, so in their 1968 trip, 
they traveled by car from New York to Vancouver and then boarded the Princess Pat to Alaska. <laughs> and they also took the same railroad tour, the railroad tour that I mentioned from Skagway. They talk about going to Juneau and um, they write, arrived in Juneau at 2.30 p.m. Ash and I went shopping. At uh, Barrett's department store was the largest in Juneau. Bought Lee a sport shirt. Ash got himself a haircut in Juneau. The curio shops here were not good, and a lot of them closed Saturday afternoon. <laughs> um, and it was really interesting because a lot of their entries talked about going shopping and, mm -hmm. and visiting a lot of the same different types of places in the different cities that they visited. And it, it seemed like they wanted more of that typical vacation, mm -hmm. resort, uh, tourist experience. I found that, that really interesting. An interesting passage from their, the account of their trip. Um, doing, during our tour, our guide pointed out homes, very small, that would sell for $10,000 to $12,000 back home and would cost about $35,000 to $40,000 in Prince Rupert or any place in Canada, or any place in Alaska, sorry. I just find that interesting because home prices here are still pretty expensive mm -hmm. uh, compared to the other places in the country. It was, it was really interesting to contrast that a little bit with, um, you know, when people did get out of sort of the tourist mindset and talk to locals. Um, there's a description in the Alvin and Betty Verser collection. Um, they traveled in Western Canada and Alaska from June 14th to July 15th, 1966. And um, they drove the Alaska Highway through Western Canada to Alaska, visiting Anchorage, Seward, Fairbanks, Skagway, Wrangell, and Juneau. They had a they had a travel trailer with them. Betty writes when they were in Seward, Al got talking to a man fishing off the pier, and next thing you know, I was out there with a pole in my hands. I got three tom cods, a nice mess for a meal, and she talks in a later passage about cooking them up for dinner. <laughs> um, and one thing that I thought was interesting, so they took that same railroad tour on the White Pass and Yukon route um, from Skagway to Carcross and back. And so their trip was $30 per person in 1966. It seemed like Ashley and Ruth Larkin also took that same trip in 1968, but their tickets were $27, hmm. which I thought was a little interesting. Yeah. yeah, that was actually one of the very few direct comparisons I could find mm -hmm. between prices in one year and prices another year, prices on one trip and prices on another trip. And that might be just because people were doing so many different things and kind of with the Alaska Highway opening, people were kind of building their own itineraries instead of taking more of a standard tour. Arlene is going to talk a little bit about tourism in the later half of the 20th century and into the 21st century. <laughs> well, what's part of the challenge here, of course, is that as we get 
closer to the present, people don't always think of their materials being uh, fodder for archives and for research. So you see this decline in the amount of collections we have as we approach today. In fact, I think our most recent collection of tourist materials comes from a couple who did a cruise in 2001, I want to say. What you have is the increase of the travel on the Alcan to Alaska, people building their own itineraries. Um, I definitely see the vast, vast increase in cruise ship traffic, so moves from the steamships. I think that's a pretty straight across reference to, to the cruise ships of today. And so we start getting a lot of cruise ship related materials in. The two I chose to kind of concentrate, the two collections, um, were because they were from the same year, and they were two very, very different itineraries. The first one was a gentleman named Al Beyer. He was, uh, in 1994, he was 70 years old. He was from Pleasanton, California, and he loved to fish. So he decided he was going to come to Alaska to fish. He rode a motorcycle from California at age 70. I got, I'm really impressed. I have to tip my hat to this guy. He rode his Goldwing. Um, he came up the Alaska Highway. He went up to Fairbanks, went down to Homer, uh, fished along the way. His original plans that he, were that he was going to spend at least part of every day fishing. And I think he just about achieved it too. And then when he was done fishing in Homer, he went, he rode back to Skagway and then took the ferry the Alaska Marine Highway System ferry from Skagway to Bellingham and then rode back down to home. Um, his total cost for his trip, and this is fun because he actually wrote up his itinerary where he was every night, how many fish he'd caught that day and what kind they were, was just over $2,000, which I think, you know, that's, that's actually a fairly low price for somebody road tripping it over yeah. a course of nearly a month. Yeah to Alaska. Of course, part of that's the motorcycle. Um, I think he, he put on over 7,000 miles on his motorcycle and paid about $270 for gas, uh-huh. which gives the price of gas in, in Alaska and, and northern, northern Canada and the Yukon Territory gets, uh, that's actually pretty good. And then the other, the other collection I'm going to talk about really quickly was the Simpson family. They took a cruise in 1994 up the Inside Passage this was a, a couple and their adult son. I have no sense of their ages from this collection, but it is an adult son. Actually, it's kind of funny because yeah, the collection, aside from the photographs and the standard postcards that everybody collected along the way at the time, um, some of it was from the son. And so there's like an empty matchbook cover in there where he's handwritten on it. Get folks to bed by 11 o'clock, then head to the disco and rock. And it made me think of- <laughs> It made me think of your Louise letters, yeah. <laughs> where it's okay, let's let's stay up all night partying. Yeah. But the really funny part about that was apparently he did this, and then there's else in the same folder there is this. It took me a while to figure out what it was. It was a little piece of foil with Princess Cruises on it, and I had to read the note he'd attached to it before I figured out what it was. And the note says. The last night on ship, we stayed up in the disco till 3.30 a.m. We didn't want to leave. After a few beers and three margaritas and too many champagne toasts, I made my way to the cabin and climbed into my bunk in the dark. I woke up with chocolate stuck to my face. It was a chocolate wrapper. He'd fallen asleep on the chocolate wrapper that the cleaning crew had left on his bed, on his pillow. (laughs) 
I'm sitting and they're still trying to figure out a few beers and three margaritas. What makes too many champagne toasts after yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think no I did. Idea. I think yeah. I'm surprised he woke too. up the next morning. You know, it's it's just that was just so funny to see this this weird little piece of mm-hmm. of uh, evidence of this guy's travels, mm-hmm. and I, that's what I'm finding interesting. Also, over the later years, what I'm kind of seeing, you know, Gwen said there's there's less textual documentation, and that's kind of this trend that continues. You're seeing. Fewer and fewer scrapbooks, fewer and fewer travel diaries. You're seeing more and more of. We've got tons and tons of slide collections and photograph collections and postcard collections with almost no, uh, very little written on them, very little mm-hmm. ID, and and no accompanying other text. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the two from '94 are a little bit of an exception. In that sense, because they saved receipts, they saved uh, luggage tags, they they saved, mm-hmm. they noted down what they were doing and when and where they were staying. But that kind of seems to drop off. Mm-hmm. That kind of leads us to some of the things that we were seeing between the three of us, I think. And we've been talking a little bit about this over the course of the past week as we were preparing for this podcast, which is what are the trends we're seeing? I mean, I'm seeing. A kind of a different type of documentation. Mm-hmm. It's moving from textual to to photographic. Um, what other yeah. types of things are you guys seeing, or have you noticed as, we, as we've been talking about this? Well, as I mentioned um, earlier, just like the change in sort of the demographics of people who are coming up here, a shift from younger people, especially younger women, to you know older couples and like older groups of friends, families. I think that would be something that I've noticed. Well, you know, I was thinking about that because when I was in grad school, and I don't really want to mention the year, but I will anyway, it was 1991. I was living in Bellingham, which of course is uh, kind of close to a starting point for a lot of the cruises that were going to Alaska at the time, the cruise ships. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather, who was had to have been in his 80s at that point, decided to take my parents and one of my aunts and uncles on a cruise to Alaska because he wanted to go. He'd always, It was on his bucket list, you know, that's the big term now, right? Mm-hmm. And so they all went and they took a cruise ship up to Skagway, I think, the pretty standard inside passage cruise. And, you know, according to mom and dad's account, it was largely people of their age on the cruise ship. I'm wondering if that's partly responsible for the demographic shift as it becomes simpler and easier. Mm -hmm. I mean, getting to Alaska and getting around Alaska, as you get older, and I understand this concept very well, gets harder (laughs) if there's not a lot of improvements. You know, I'm wondering if that's maybe some of the shift we're seeing is partly to cruise ships and partly to just the ease of travel. Mm -hmm. I think so. And I think, like, possibly a lot of younger people are still coming up here. They're just doing it differently. Um, they're doing recreation. And they're not yeah. donating their yeah. papers yet. Yet, right. In the, in the earlier days, it was definitely a mix of either single women, families, couples, um, older couples, younger couples, since a lot of this, the material that we have from the older days is largely either unidentified or we only know the person's name. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to tell their ages. But I think Biddle was probably in his 30s. Um, we, there is one collection where it was a group of children that came up. 
they were like junior ambassadors. Oh, the Tom Faraday. The Tom Faraday scrapbook from 1940 came to Alaska as a junior ambassador from the Golden Gate Exposition of 1939 to 1940. So that was a group of children. I think the Mowers, who came up in 1941, I think they were probably about a middle-aged couple at the time. They looked to be about middle-aged in the photographs. We have the Ebby, Shellen, and Stark papers, and they look to be about women in their 30s or 40s. There's Cornelia and Rainier Kessels, and they were probably about middle-aged at that time. Lois Little, she was a teacher, and she came up with her parents. We're seeing people from all different types of backgrounds, too. It's, mm-hmm. There's the assumption that it was wealthier people who were able to come to Alaska in the early days, and I don't know exactly how true that was. I don't know their, these people's finances, obviously, but there are a few teachers. I think the Mowers. Mildred was a homemaker. I believe her husband was a science teacher. He got a degree in science education. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really say what he did for a living. Kind of all over. There was one group that was sponsored by a Baptist community. The Peter Ferry family photographs. They came up with seven kids, a son-in-law, the man and his wife. Wow. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's, it's pretty varied. I don't think I'd survive that trip. Yeah, no. <laughs> and then the format, too, in the early days, it's also pretty pretty varied. There's either just diaries or there's photograph albums. Mm-hmm. Some of the photograph albums have absolutely no captions, so you mm-hmm. don't know where any of these places are unless you can recognize. Some of them have very funny captions. I think we're seeing very similar to what we're seeing today, kind of. yeah. You know, it photographs might without mostly much description. Much description. Um, yeah, it seems like sort of in the mid 20th century, there were a lot of scrapbooks where people mm-hmm. saved, you know, not only photographs but memorabilia, um, receipts, tickets, um, napkins, mm-hmm. other types of um, sort of ephemeral things uh, that they picked up along the way. Um, and also wrote, instead of having like a separate travel diary, mm-hmm. would write their, um, you know, the account of their travels mm-hmm. in right in that scrapbook. Right. The Kessels, they're the ones who took the room key from the Prince Rupert that they were on, <laughs> which is on display in the Archives Research Room. They also had a lot of beer labels in their scrapbook. Oh, that's interesting. Which is kind of neat. They had one from the Blue Fox which is a beer parlor in Ketchikan. They also had labels from paper mills from the southeast in Canada, which was kind of neat, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they just glued them right into the scrapbook. So what do you think, you know, thinking about what we've seen across the collections, and of course we continue to collect materials like this, so, you know, be aware Mm -hmm. that if you've been to visit Alaska and you want to ship us your stuff, let's talk. What do you think the future holds? Because, you know, we're seeing... Some things are remaining the same, clearly, mm-hmm. but you know the documentation itself seems to be doing a partial shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as we move more to e, mm-hmm. you know, people pulling out their cell phones yeah. and taking photographs or videos with their cell phones, whether or not they keep them, where they end up—that's uh, always mm-hmm. a good question. You know, mm-hmm. those, those at least I have to admit are generally dated and sometimes they if somebody has yeah. their find my phone app on they can actually be placed to a location 
but they may not come with extensive captioning of these are these five people we're doing this at this time yeah you know so so what do you think the future holds for documentation of tourism in Alaska so I think of course it's going to be a lot more digital I also think we're going to be seeing a lot more like recreational activities and um, sort of adventure adventure tourism because the younger people that I know who have visited Alaska have done so to go hiking or you know kayaking or rafting so I think I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of those types of activities represented I think in the future we might see more of those, you know, printed scrapbooks that you can get through mm-hmm. um, photograph companies like Snapfish oh, or Costco right. instead of, you know, the individual photographs. And those could be largely captioned. I think right, that's Because true. that's an easy way for them to make them. And I do know some people who do that. Right. Um, some people still print their photographs out, so it could still be similar to that. I don't think people tend to save their receipts anymore. No. <laughs> so I don't think we're really I, we so going... rarely get them. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I just turn them away at the It's at all the paper. Store. Or we get the or we get emails if we book a flight or right. book a tour. We just get emails and you might keep it for when the day of the tour, but then you're gonna throw it out. I mean I do. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I think that might go along like might go away. I don't think we're gonna see as much financial documentation right. of trips. So thinking about it in other terms, because, of course, we're not just saving these things to save them. Mm -hmm. We're saving them for potential use. Mm -hmm. Think about what we're seeing in terms of use of these materials Mm -hmm. already. Um, Why would somebody want to think about their things as archival in the sense of, you know, even now or 20 years from now? What kinds of researchers might be after them? So I think tourist papers can be used for a variety of reasons, actually. Especially with Southeast Alaska, since that's where a lot of people were going in the earlier days, you can kind of see how it has changed over the years. So mm-hmm. what did it look like in 1891? What did it look like in 1914? Um, people are taking photographs of streets. They're taking photographs of buildings, of the people that lived there. So you can cut, and there's that documentation. And people are also taking a lot of photographs of glaciers. And they still yes. do, and that is a very popular thing to do, is going on glacier hikes. And apparently it was a thing to do back in the early 1900s with tourists, too. So that, you know, so people don't really think of tourist papers as a research mechanism for, like, glacial recession. But they actually document that a lot, because that's where people are going, and that's what people are seeing. Actually, there's and a really the cool project over yeah. and over again. Yeah, that this glaciologist in Alaska did, and we'll put a link to it on the webpage so you can get everything I'm skipping right now, like the gentleman's name, mm-hmm. where he t- went into the tourist photos mm-hmm. because they all kind of approached the glacier from the same angle on those yeah. boats. and he, So he so went into collections mm-hmm. all over, yeah. took those photos, and created a moving image of the glacier changing mm-hmm. over the decades, yeah. which was really cool. And it's it's an interesting use. You know, normally we're looking at these, oh, another glacier, oh, another glacier. Yeah. And we're not thinking about, okay, in and of itself, it's not that useful, that photograph mm-hmm. necessarily. But suddenly you start putting it in mm-hmm. with many, many others from very different people and very different time frames. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you're seeing something right there's a pattern or there's yeah. there's some development or something yeah. like that 
I mean, I think Taku Glacier is one that almost everybody who went to Southeast took photos <laughs> on. Yeah. Um, that appears in the scrapbook from 1891, and right. it's actually identified in that scrapbook. And then there's Mendenhall Glacier that we're seeing a lot of. Columbia Glacier. Columbia, Valdez Glacier. Um, Matanuska Glacier and Exit Glacier and yeah, Seward, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which those would be more of the later materials. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't think Exit Glacier was in anything that I saw, but... Yeah, I don't know that I saw it really I think pre-World War II. Yeah, I think it seems to be... It's very heavily trafficked today, and I it don't is. know when that really started to pick up. Right. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. So that's kind of neat to see, though, the, the glaciers. These people weren't flying over them at the time. So. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Planes didn't really exist in I mean, there are other things like, okay, the, the ubiquitous scenery shot of um, mm-hmm. Mount Denali, if you actually get to see it while you're in the park, mm-hmm. which is so, so rare... You know, that mountain's not changing a whole lot. <laughs> the weather around it certainly, you know, creates its own weather patterns, yeah. it seems. But, uh, yeah. um, but, but then usually if they've got a picture of the mountain, they've got a photograph of some of the wildlife they saw, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. it's kind of like the prevalence of the wildlife yes. in the park, too. Yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting to see the development of places like Ketchikan mm-hmm. or Sitka and how those have changed yeah, over the years or how they haven't changed over the years. Because mm-hmm. certainly those were like the f- first places that people mm-hmm. were coming in the early days and they continue to go there mm-hmm. um, into even up to the present on, on cruise ships. And a fair amount of the economy of Alaska mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in some of these towns yeah. is, is dependent on the tourist trade. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're interested in seeing any of these collections, um, we'll have some links to the ones we've talked about, to our guides to collections on our website that accompanies this podcast, and some of the other things we've talked about in here. We have digitized some materials related to some of these uh, records, and they are up on the Alaska's Digital Archives. We'll put some links into that. I did some photographs from Mr. Byers photographs on him and his his motorcycle traveling through Alaska <laughs> so those we'll, we'll put at least one or one or more of those on the web page but there's a whole bunch more up on the Alaska's digital archives and again we'll put that link up on the site thank you thank you for joining us this month for archiving AK for the next episode Veronica will be interviewing our colleagues at Amipa the Alaska Moving Image Preservation Association. They're a nonprofit archives that shares the archive space with us here at the Consortium Library, and they focus on collecting audio and moving image materials, along with doing preservation work with those types of media. Veronica will be talking with them about the work they do, the people they serve, and the challenges of working with this type of media.